footstool. I'll put it back when I'm done, I promise. Good morning, church. Let's pray before we get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we um, we just gather this morning. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. We need your touch, Lord. We need your embrace. Father, just nationally, we're in such a weird time. Just so many people are on edge, Lord. And our, our need for you is becoming more and more apparent, Lord. And as your as your return draws ever closer, we pray that you would just enliven your people, Lord. Revive us. Breathe your spirit into us and let us be found to, to be about your business, Father. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I'll tell you something kind of funny. I Maybe it's funny, I don't know. Um... So I have an app on my phone, um, and I think I told you about the app before. It's called Dwell, and it's a pretty cool app. It's got like daily Bible readings, and you can hear, um, you can hear, you know, whatever you want, whatever passage you want, and it has different like backing music, and it's got like different voices reading it, so you can get like an African voice or a Mediterranean voice. It's just kind of a cool app, and so I, I'll kind of throughout the week, I'll, I'll listen to. Um, I'll listen to whatever passage that I'm teaching, just kind of over and over again on repeat. And so all week last week, I um, was listening to um, Acts chapter 13 while I was going to be teaching Acts chapter 12. And so that was awesome. <laughs> and, um, but now I feel ultra prepared this week. I've gotten two weeks of Acts 13. So uh, <laughs> anyway... Over the course of the last few chapters, you know, the, the subject matter has been kind of jumping around a little bit. We were focused on Peter a little bit, then it would flash back to Paul and then back to Peter. But as we move into Acts chapter 13, there's really a, really sort of a, a, a paradigm shift in the book of Acts. We're going to see Luke completely move away from, from the church in Jerusalem. He's no longer going to focus on that, on that church in Jerusalem there. He's going to primarily, for the rest of the book of Acts, he's going to focus on Paul's ministry with the Gentiles. And in fact, the only time that we're going to see the church in Jerusalem from here on out in Acts is as it relates to Paul's ministry and Paul going back to visit. So this morning as we open up the text, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 13. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So Luke tells us that at the church in Antioch there were prophets. What's a prophet? A lot of times when we talk about prophecy, you know, images of the weekly world news pop up. 
right? And, and the, the, the predictions that Nostradamus made. Or maybe you think of Miss Chloe or, or Dionne Warwick and the psychic network and, and foretelling the future and all these kinds of things. Or maybe when you hear the word prophet, your mind goes to somebody like Daniel in Scripture who was a real prophet of God. <clears throat> but you think of, you know, that, that foretelling of the future. And, and, and to be sure, that is part of prophecy. But it's actually in Scripture only a, only a small part of prophecy. The primary job of the prophet is proclaiming the word of the Lord. Receiving a word from the Lord and proclaiming it to his people. You know, and, and, and teachers proclaim the word too, right? I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher. I, <coughs> I proclaim God's word. Does that necessarily make me a prophet? No, right? God didn't speak to my heart last night and give me a brand new revelation, right? He didn't speak to my heart and give me a specific word for someone. You know, I, I teach the word, but it's because I study, right? I studied the Bible, and I, and I prepared a message, and now I'm proclaiming the word of God. But it's not necessarily prophetic. It isn't a direct revelation from the Lord. But there are some people who are prophets, who possess the gift of prophecy, and for those people, the Lord gives them specific words of insight, specific words of direction. Sometimes it's that, you know, the Lord is, is telling you this kind of thing. And it truly is a, a word from the Lord. But when we, we receive that sort of a, a, a word of prophecy, we need to remember that, number one, it always agrees with Scripture. Prophecy will never contradict the written, revealed Word of God. And we always need to remember that. Whenever we're listening to a Bible study or a teaching or anything like that, we always have to compare it to the written, revealed Word of God. And if it doesn't line up with that, if it doesn't agree with that, cast it out. We can't base anything on our emotions or our experiences or what we think the Spirit is telling us, right? If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, cast it out because it's not from Him. So it says prophets and teachers gathered in the church. So and it, <coughs> it gives us a list. It says among the church leaders, there are the five guys, five leaders in the church of Antioch. And remember, this was, a, this was an exciting time to be at the church in Antioch. The Lord was moving, the Gentiles were getting saved, the Jews and the Gentiles, we find them worshiping together. It's a, a very diverse, metropolitan kind of church, people working together, and the gospel is being proclaimed. It's beginning to spread throughout the region. And Luke notes these five guys. Barnabas. Barnabas was a a Jewish man from Crete. He, remember, he was one of the disciples that was sent out to, to check on that initial revival there in Antioch with the Gentiles. 
And then there's Simon called Niger. And it's likely that this is the same man who helped Jesus carry his cross. And it says that he's from Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya. And it says Simon called Niger. And some translations say Simon the black man. And what that is is this. Most likely that he was a Jew from Africa. He was of Jewish descent, but he also had African blood as well. And so he was darker than the Mediterranean Jews. And it's sort of similar to the, the Jewish community in Ethiopia today. Right? There, there's a large Jewish community there, and they and they're, they really are Jews. They have all the, the Jewish genetic markers, but they're not fully Jewish. Right? There's been other, other people groups have, have kind of intermixed. Now, in, in those days, in the Roman Empire, racism didn't really exist in the way that, that we think it does today. It didn't really exist in terms of, uh, of skin color. And, and there was racism, but it would have been more based on, on culture and on, on, on country of origin. And so it wouldn't have been surprising to see African Jews in, in positions of leadership like this. Finally, we see, or not finally, but we see Lucius. And Lucius was also from Cyrene. <clears throat> Cyrene, it had a large Hellenistic Jewish community. And so this guy, he may have been of mixed, mixed ethnicity as well, or he may have been fully Jewish, but he's from that same area in Libya. And then we have Menean the companion of Herod the Tetrarch. This guy, he, he grew up in the royal court. He, he was a childhood friend of, of Herod, the one who oversaw Jesus' death. And that's interesting to me, that these two kids who kind of grew up together had similar upbringings. One of them goes on to put Jesus to death, and the other goes on to be a leader in the church. And then finally, we see Saul, the former Pharisee who was converted to Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It says that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Some of your translations might say ministering to the Lord and fasting. This worshiping the Lord, ministering to the Lord, this is the highest calling that we have as believers. Worshiping God is the highest calling that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the highest calling that we can undertake. And you know, some of us by nature are, are doers. Right? We saw that in the example of, of Mary and Martha in the Gospels, right? One of them sat at the feet of Jesus and worshiped, and the other one was always busy doing, doing, doing. And, and, and for some of us, that just kind of comes naturally. 
Ministering is easy for me. Serving people, doing the work of the ministry, doing stuff, that's easy for me. But, but for me, sitting still is a lot harder. Denise and I, we go on vacation, and, and, and there's always conflict on our vacations because Denise just wants to sit and chill. She just wants to relax on vacation, and, 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 and I want to be doing something. I get bored, and, and all of a sudden my ADD kicks in, and I start harassing her and annoying her, and finally she'll just yell, go do something. Leave me alone. Get out of here. Right? Because I have a hard time just, just sitting there. But David says in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we need to just sit and be still before Lord. And, and I think that, that that's something that some of us, we need to, it's a skill that we need to develop almost. But we need to learn to be still before the Lord, to worship the Lord, to minister to the Lord. We see that with these guys here. They stopped, right? They stopped doing. They stopped their activities and they gathered. And they're worshiping and praying, spending time in the presence of the Lord. And I think that sometimes we as sort of the modern church, we kind of think of worship as sort of filler time. Right? It's the time before church really starts. We're going to sing for a little while while we wait for those who are in the line at the espresso shop to get here. Right? We're going to sing for a little while while we, arrate, while we wait for the, for the latecomers, while we wait for people to find seats. And that's wrong. Worship is essential to our Christian experience. As we, as we gather and as we sit before the Lord singing His praises, as we <clears throat> exalt His name and enter into His presence, it sort of, it, it puts us in tune with Him. It prepares our hearts for whatever it is that He has for us. And so we find them sitting in the presence of the Lord. And as they do that, what happens? The Holy Spirit speaks to them. And he says, dedicate Barnabas and Saul. And I want to notice that. At this time, it seems like Barnabas was the, um, the leader of the duo, right? Saul's, Saul's the sidekick here, right? If Barnabas was Batman, Saul would have been Robin. If Barnabas was the Lone Ranger, Paul would have been Tonto, right? He's, just, he's sort of the sidekick. He's sort of the, the periphery guy. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He says, set them apart. I have a special job for them. And something that just occurred to me just now as I was reading that, it's not in my notes or anything. But the Holy Spirit says, <clears throat> set them apart for the work which I have called them. And I think it's important to note that serving the Lord, it's work. Right? It takes effort. It takes focus. It takes a, a decision and a conscious effort to serve the Lord. 
So the Lord says, set them apart for a special job. You know, I've called them to do something different than what they're doing now. And then the guys, they, they spend more time in prayer and worship, we see, confirming that it was indeed the Holy Spirit who was speaking to them. And the Lord, he, he spoke probably through one of the prophets mentioned there. And again, they spent time confirming this calling of the Lord, making sure that it was the Lord who was, who was directing them. And then they, we see they, they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they, and they send them on their way. But I want to notice this, that they're set apart for the Lord. In order to be set apart for something, you have to also be separated from something. Does that make sense? You have to be, you have to be set, if you're going to be set apart for the service of God, you have to be set apart from what everybody else is doing. And, and I think of it like this, like an athlete, like a fighter, right? A fighter, if they're getting ready to have a fight, they typically have a, a six to eight week fight camp. And in that fight camp, they have conditioning, they're working on their cardio, they're, they're focusing on their, on their technical work, on their sparring or grappling or whatever. They you know, they're, they're, they're putting work in there. They're dedicating themselves to that preparation, to that, to that training. And in order for them to do that, they have to separate themselves from other aspects of their life. Right? When, when fighters are in training camp, they're not partying. They're not going to potlucks. They're not eating pints of Ben and Jerry's. Right? They have to, to fully devote themselves to the training before them. And that's sort of the idea here, right? If you're separating yourself to the work and will of God, it means that you need to separate yourself from the world. And in my experience in ministry, I've met so many believers who, who want to serve God. They want to be about the business of God, but they don't want to separate themselves from the world. They don't want to separate themselves from their old lives. <clears throat> they say, you know, we, we, we want to serve the Lord, but we don't want to give up anything to do it. And I'm here to tell you it doesn't work that way. There are areas of our old lives that we have to give up to be effectively used by the Lord. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed, <coughs> sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then they had John to assist them. So this is interesting. The Holy Spirit sets them apart, and he, and he calls them to be missionaries. And this is the very first missionary venture that we know of. And there have been others who, who have gone out and shared the gospel when, when, when the church was persecuted and the believers fled, right, the gospel went with them. Or when believers went on business trips, right, the gospel went with them. They told people about Jesus. But they were sort of accidental missionaries. This, 
This is the very first specific missionary venture, right? They went on a trip specifically to share the gospel with people. They left home and traveled to foreign lands with a, a specific intent to share with the gospel with, with those who hadn't formally heard it. And remember, Jesus had commissioned the church to do this very thing, to go out and take the gospel everywhere. Remember, we saw it in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And remember, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we see that from the very beginning, from the inception of the church, we had a calling to mission. We had a calling to share the gospel. We had a calling to, to proclaim the gospel around the world. But we see that it took the church about 10 years to finally get to the place where they are ready to begin to fulfill that great commission. And Paul and Barnabas here, they set out on this mission trip. And I was thinking about this. You know, we are, we're heading into the Christmas season right now. Right? And we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're celebrating the, the incarnation of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. But really, this is sort of Jesus' mission trip, isn't it? Right? Jesus had the heart of a missionary. Leaving home, leaving the, the heavenly abode, leaving the spiritual realm, and coming here, coming to live among us, proclaiming the truth of God to lost men. And here we begin to see the church emulate the heart of Jesus in this. We see the people of God leaving home. We see them heading out to foreign lands in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Taking the gospel message to the lost. Walking in this, in this absolute faith. Sort of walking in the dark and the unknown. Trusting the Spirit to lead them. And something interesting I see here. We see that the Lord tells them to go. But do you know what we don't see? We don't see God telling them where to go here, do we? How did they know where the Lord was sending them? And, and this is an important question. How do we know what the Lord has for us? How do we know the will of God for our lives. It says they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. How did they know that that was the route that they were supposed to take? You know, we really don't know. Maybe it was Barnabas and Saul chatting, and one of them said, hey, you know, I'm from Cyprus. I know people there who don't know Jesus. Okay, let's go there. Right? Sometimes... The Lord will give us very specific instructions. I want you to go here, and I want you to do this. And sometimes he'll very specifically reveal it through prophecy 
or through the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. But sometimes, God just sort of leaves things up to us. And I've talked about this before, but John Corson said once concerning discerning the will of God in your life. And he said, you know, do you want to know his will? He said, walk with him. Live in obedience to what you know that he's telling you to do. Serve him. Live to please him. And then do whatever you want. And the idea is this. If you're, if you're walking in the spirit, if you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, your, desi- your desires, your wants will, will naturally be in line with his. And sometimes I think the Lord doesn't have a, a specific plan for us. Maybe some of you ladies woke up this morning, hopefully just ladies, you know, and should I wear a dress to church or should I wear pants to church? I don't know. What do you want to do? It might not be that the Lord has a specific plan for you in that. Should I drive to work this morning or should I take the bus? Well, I don't know. Maybe some days the Lord has a specific plan because he wants you to have a divine intervention with somebody. Sometimes he says, do what you want. Should I be a missionary to Kenya or to Vietnam? Well, do you like pho or do you like Africa, right? Sometimes the Lord will put his desires in your heart as you walk with him. But I want you to be aware of this this do-whatever-you-want rule. It only applies to those who are walking in close fellowship with the Lord. So Barnabas and Saul, they were sent out by the Lord, and they get to Seleucia. And, you know, they might not have even known where they were going until they got there. And and that's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's been said that you can't steer a parked car. Right? Sometimes... The Lord doesn't give you direction until you're already in motion. Sometimes the Lord won't give you more specific directions until your faith starts moving in the direction that he's already leading you in. And that's the sort of, thy word is a, is a lamp unto my feet and light into my path thing that we talk about all the time. Right? How the word of God, it directs us. But it's like a lantern, it only directs us the next few steps, and we have to walk in obedience and those next few steps carrying that lamp, and then it shows us the few steps after that. But the principle is this. We start moving in the direction that we think the Lord is leading us in, and he'll continue to show us the path. So they go down to Seleucia, they check in, right? They update their Facebook status. And then they head down to Cyprus. And Cyprus is an island to the south of Greece. So in verse 5, they reach Cyprus. They go to the synagogue. And it was sort of their custom, we're going to see, to go to the synagogues and and to share. And in those days, if you visited a synagogue and you were a, a, a qualified teacher, they would just let you get up and teach. And Paul, being a Pharisee, he was certainly qualified. So Paul, they invite him to teach, and he gets up, and he begins to share about Jesus. And I can only imagine that as 
soon as he starts preaching about Jesus, they're, they're instantly regretting it. You know, and they're kind of like, how can we get this guy down from here? How can we get him off the podium? So Paul, he preaches, and after that, after he goes to the Jews, he goes to the Gentiles and begins to share in the, in the public places and in the markets. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false teacher named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul, or he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they traveled the whole island of Cyprus, sharing the gospel. And when they got to the far side of the island, this place called Paphos, they met a fellow Jew there by the name of Bar-Jesus. Anytime you see that bar in front of a Hebrew name, it means son of. So this guy's name was son of Jesus. And remember, Jesus was a very common day in that name. And this man, Bar-Jesus, he ends up being a sorcerer, a magician. And not the card trick, sleight of hand kind of magician, right? Not the saw a lady in half in a box kind of magician. Right? He's, the, he's the false prophet kind of magician. Right? The deceiving kind of magician. And he's been hanging out with the governor of the area for a while. This guy, Sergius Paulus. And scripture says that he was a bright guy. He's an intelligent guy. And he wanted to learn. So he, so he calls Barnabas and Saul to explain the teaching. And this guy, Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, he seems to sense that he's about to lose his place of influence and position. So he tries to get the governor here to, to ignore the teaching of Barnabas and Paul. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked paths, not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Sort of a side note here. It says Saul, also known as Paul. And we talked about this a few chapters back. You know, we hear all the time, you know, pastors and preachers talking about how, how the Lord changed Saul's name to Paul. And it's just, it's not true. There's no indication of that anywhere in Scripture. And culturally, that wouldn't have made sense. We see here the governor's name is Sergius Paulus. Right? He had a, a first name and a last name, or at least two different names. And Paulus in English is Paul, right? Paul's Hebrew name was Saul, and his Greek name was Paulus. Right? His name was Saul Paulus. <clears throat> and when he was primarily among the Jews... He went by his Jewish name. And now that he's in the Greek world, he's using his Greek name. Right? There's nothing particularly spiritual about it. It wasn't a, a, a spiritual name change. It was, it was just a practical matter. 
Everybody in my family has, has dual nationality. We're all citizens of the U.S., of the United States, and we're citizens of Belize. And when I fly into Belize, I use my Belizean passport. And I go to the line for, for, for Belizean travelers because it's shorter. Right? And I get through faster. As a matter of convenience, I use my, my, my Belizean ID. And when I leave, I always present my Belizean passport because I don't have to pay the exit fee of $30 that, that foreigners have to pay. But when I arrive back in Dallas or Houston, that U.S. passport comes back out. Right? Because if I just try to get into the U.S. with my Belizean passport, they're going to say, sorry, go home. And that's sort of what we're talking about here. Paul is essentially doing the same thing. In reality, we find him becoming all things to all men. Right? When, when Paul is among the Jews, he tends to identify a little more with his Jewish identity. And when Paul is among the Greeks, he identifies a little more with his, with his Greek identity. Now anyway, there's this Jewish sorcerer trying to prevent this guy Sergius from believing. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Saul, by all accounts, was a little guy, not a very imposing figure, not a very intimidating guy. I was describing him a few weeks ago, and somebody came up afterwards, and he said, you're kind of describing Danny DeVito, right? That's kind of what I imagine that, that Paul looked like a little bit. But in this moment, it seems like he grows in stature, doesn't he? Kind of gets larger than light. And Paul, he, he, he calls this guy out for his actions. And he doesn't pull any punches either, does he? You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. And he says, stop trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And that's an interesting turn of phrase there. Because remember when John the Baptist was out in the wilderness and he was preaching about the, the repentance of sins and the coming of the Messiah, how was he described? He was described as making straight the crooked paths. Right? It was a reference back to a prophecy in Isaiah 41. And here this guy is accused of making, trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, Paul says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So look at this. This magician, where he's giving trouble... He's distracting from the work that Paul is doing. And Paul stands up. And he says, the hand of the Lord be upon you. 
right? And, and not in a good way, right? It's talking about the backhand of the Lord. And he says, look, you're going to be blind for a while. You're not even going to be able to see the light of the sun. And immediately this man loses his sight. <clears throat> and he has to ask people to, to, to lead him around, to lead him back to his house. Now, listen. Don't be a Elimus bar Jesus. Don't be found hindering and opposing the work of God. Because the will of God will always be accomplished. The will of God will always go forward. And if you're found opposing the will of God, you might just get knocked out of the way like this guy did. But look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it says that the, the proconsul believed. It says that he saw what happened. But, but, but look what Luke points out here. It wasn't necessarily the miracle that caused Sergius to believe, was it? And it may have played a role in it, but it wasn't the primary thing Luke tells us. What was it? It says right there at the end of verse 12, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It was the teaching of the Word of God that changed his heart. It wasn't the miracles it wasn't the signs and wonders. It was the clear proclamation of God's word that impacted this man. And I think that that's something that we need to understand. In Hebrews, it says that the, the word of God is, is living and active. In Isaiah, it says that the word of God doesn't return void. Guys, the word of God is powerful. And we don't have to be especially gifted teachers. We don't have to be great preachers to proclaim the Word of God. We just need to, to let the Word of God go. We need to proclaim the gospel and, and let the Lord do the work. And, and He will. Sometimes we feel like when we share the gospel, we need, to, we need to add something to it. We feel like it's bland and we need to, we need to spice it up a little bit. We need to, to kind of spruce it up a little bit. Sometimes we feel like when we're teaching, we need to, to add a little flash to it, to give it a little pizzazz, right? We need, the, we need the gospel plus some confetti and some ribbons and some balloons falling down from the sky. But the gospel, guys, it doesn't need any of that. And the reality of the fact is, is we have nothing worthwhile to add to the gospel. We need simply to proclaim the gospel message. We need to preach the name of Jesus. We need to preach the cross and call people to repentance. And then step back and let the Holy Spirit do His work. We need to proclaim sin and salvation. We need to proclaim the blood and the cross. We need to tell people about how Jesus died to save them from their sins. How they can be forgiven and restored and can find new life in Him. 
And then we need to let the Holy Spirit do His perfect work in their hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that You would that you would give us boldness, the boldness of Paul, Lord. And that we would just proclaim the gospel message, that we would set it free, that we would open the doors, Lord. That we would proclaim your word and then just step back and let your spirit do his work, Father. And again, we just pray for, we pray for, for clarity and for boldness, Lord, and for wisdom as we seek to, to fulfill the great commission that you've given us. We ask that in your name, Jesus.